couple of minutes later, I thought to myself, she got quiet. I said to myself, this, I really was sort of annoyed. So I said to her, why can't I be your daughter? And she said, my daughter is attractive and professional. Look at you. <laughs> this is Caregiver Storyteller, produced by Caring Kind, the heart of Alzheimer's caregiving. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Caregiver Storyteller, a storytelling podcast about Alzheimer's and dementia caregiving. I'm Chris Doucette, and I'll be interviewing caregivers to get their stories about Alzheimer's and dementia caregiving. Occasionally, I'll also interview the authors, advocates, researchers, healthcare professionals, and people with Alzheimer's and dementia to hear their stories, too. So, are you ready? Here we go. I'm Llewellyn Barkin. Uh, I live in New York City, and my relationship to Alzheimer's and dementia is that both my father and my mother um, had dementia well into their 80s. My mom was the caregiver for my dad, and I was the caregiver for my mom. You were the caregiver for your mom? I was my mom's caregiver uh, when she had her stroke. And while people talk about Alzheimer's and dementia as being, a lot of people are confused about what the difference is. The reality is from a caregiver perspective, doesn't make a lot of difference. When people are no longer able to care for themselves or to take care of what we call the activities of daily living, dressing, bathing, mm -hmm. eating, mm -hmm. then it doesn't so much matter what form of dementia they have. The caregiver has the same responsibility to make sure that they're safe, and that the end of their life actually is as peaceful as possible. Both my parents, oddly enough, died when they were 88. Mm. And my dad was sick for 12 years, and my mom was his caregiver as that disease progressed. My mom was sick for a little less time than that, but at the end of her life, she was completely dependent, and we had her in a nursing home. How did your father's illness show itself, and what was your reaction and your family's reaction? And my father was the nicest man on the planet. He had a wonderful temperament. If he got excited and upset, he did it at work. He never did it at home. And he was the kind of guy who um, was always a little spacey about certain things. Sometimes he'd park his car in the movie parking lot and kind of forget where it was. Sometimes he would forget what time it was. He was supposed to be at a particular dinner. But it was never intentional. And so for a long time, as his memory and his cognition got a little less good, we were all a little less aware probably than we should have been. So it really took an event to bring us all to the table. And what happened was that my father had written, apparently, some checks to a variety of charities. And for a long time, he took care of all of the financials, all the checkbooks and the business. That was his department. My mother took care of the house and the home. And my mom called me up one morning, and she said, I found a lot of checks that your father wrote. He hadn't balanced his checkbook in a number of months and the checks that he had written to some charities were, they weren't enormous, but they were big enough to make a difference. Mm. And she had no idea what he was doing. And frankly, neither did he. And she was very upset. So my brother and I went over there and we looked at the information and we realized that a lot of what we'd been observing with my dad wasn't his normal spaciness or sort of forgetting things and his mm -hmm. sort of increasingly um, sort of odd ill temper upon occasion in the house was also very uncharacteristic. None of it made any sense until that moment mm. when we said something else is going on here. Mm. And that was a real moment for us. And it took that moment for us to sort of all say, okay, something's happening. Now we really need to deal with it. Right up to that point, we had been treating most of these things as if they were just bad being dead. So what, what was the next step? Was the next step a doctor's appointment? The next step, we all agreed my dad should have a checkup. And, and how did he feel about that? And he wasn't thrilled. <laughs> 
You know, his idea of a checkup was you go to his doctor, he has a cardiogram, he has a blood test, he has his usual, the doctor says, you're fine, you can play more golf now. Right. But he wasn't crazy about going to a specialist in, at that time they were living in Westchester. And get going to a specialist meant getting in the car, driving to Manhattan, going to the hospital. And in those days, now going back to the 1970s, the word Alzheimer's and the idea of having Alzheimer's special examinations really wasn't very common. People would examine you and they would sort of say, um, they didn't really know what it was. Clearly he had some, something was going on. And they would ex- talk about things like depression. Uh, maybe he was having more to drink, which actually he wasn't. Mm-hmm. Maybe he wasn't getting enough rest. But mm-hmm. nobody really directly confronted it the way we might do today. And he was about 75 at this he time. He was about, about 75. Yeah. He had had previous to all of this, which was we still think in some ways might have been a trigger for it, um, a, a surgery for a, prost- a tumor that was actually benign. But the surgery itself took quite a long time. And he was under the anesthetic for something like 11 hours. And so we've always thought, since most of this took place after that, that that might have been some kind of a trigger, but frankly, I don't think anyone knows. When we right. went to the doctor, the doctor said yes, based on what he had seen. It was serious. clearly something was happening. Mm-hmm. He didn't call it Alzheimer's. He didn't mm-hmm. call it anything. He just said something was happening that we should, you know, be aware that my father's condition might get less. It might be less good over some period of time, and that was the beginning. Do you think that having a name to it would have been more scary or less scary? I think having a name for something is actually less scary. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, first of all, it puts you in a cohort of other people that might, mm-hmm. in fact, have the same thing. And there's also, it's always something about to deconstructing the mystery, mm-hmm. I think, that's reassuring. Mm-hmm. I think not kind of knowing made us suspicious of everything. You know, we kind of watched my father when he went to get a drink after dinner to see if he was drinking. And, you know, was mm-hmm. he um, getting enough rest? Everybody was suspicious of everything was June. It was really silly. Mm-hmm. In a way, if we had known it was Alzheimer's, then I think we would have been much better off. My mother actually called it Alzheimer's and informed his brothers and sisters, he had two brothers and a sister, that the their youngest brother, my dad, had Alzheimer's disease, and they were very resistant. Oh, interesting. There was a lot of pushback. Yeah. You know, my baby brother doesn't have Alzheimer's disease. You know, mm. your mom's making all this stuff up. You know, what it, what it was, we certainly had a very severe progressive dementia. Mm-hmm. Had somebody called it Alzheimer's, we would have been, I think, more at ease. To be honest, even now, I'm not sure we know what that means, but it would have been helpful. Right. And how did your mom respond to the caregiving role? My mom once told me she never never worked until my father got sick. <laughs> um, and then she had a new day job. Uh-huh. She was filling out medical forms, so take, dragging him around to hospitals and doctors. She had a full-time job. And when I went out one day to take her to lunch and I said, let's leave him, you know, Dad, we had somebody to watch him that afternoon and I'll take you out to lunch. And she said, I can't leave him. This is my job. It was, I'd never heard my mother talk like that. She uh-huh. was really took it very seriously. And much to her own, uh, unfortunately, her own regret, I think, later, she was not well herself physically. Mm-hmm. And the ongoing caregiving took a tremendous toll on her health. Mm. In the beginning, there was a lot of um, sort of clever ideas. For example, my dad used to get up in the middle of the night and walk out the door. Mm-hmm. And my mother finally came up with a solution. She put cowbells on the door, big, giant cowbells. Uh-huh. So even if she couldn't stop him from leaving, you know, she could kind of know when he was leaving. Right. He was a big, strong guy, former professional athletes, and she was a little tiny lady. So she didn't have a lot of physical control over him. Mm-hmm. But she, she had all these little tricks. That would be one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, we, he stopped driving, which was a blessing, not only for my parents, but also for everybody on the road. Right. And that was helpful. So she started to drive more. She mm. had always been a driver. She That was never a problem for her. 
But all of a sudden, she was driving everywhere, and I think it was, and she was exhausted. I mean, there was no question, absolutely exhausted. How did their How did their relationship change then? If she's taking on this burden and she's exhausted, did uh, was yeah. did their relationship deteriorate, or did it somehow stabilize or get better? What was the? Yeah, my parents had a really interesting love affair. They were like Marilyn Monroe and Joe DiMaggio. Uh-huh. They were um, <laughs> really in love, and then they were fighting <laughs> my whole life. But they were crazy about each other. Yeah. And what happened? My father sort of we always. My father sort of just gave up the ghost. You know, my mother always wanted to be in charge of everything. And when they went to loggerheads about something that she wanted to control and he didn't want her to do it and they would argue about it. But what happened is, I think even before we had a, a sense that there was something really happening, was he just sort of threw up his hands and let her take over. Mm-hmm. And she took over everything. And what was some of that was good because she really did have a better sense of what she should be doing. Right. Some of it was not good because she had no background at all in managing the finances of the house, and expenses became very difficult, and they ran out of money very quickly, and that was a terrible problem. And he, by the time that happened, he was already, my dad was already so far down the road that I just, I don't think he really understood it at all. Right. Right, so that it really was yeah. on her shoulders yeah. at that point. Yeah, she had decided she wanted to move. They moved to Florida. Mm-hmm. Um, they to an ex- apartment they probably couldn't afford at that time, but they stayed there for a while. And you know, they, he walked on the beach, and they had their buddies down at the pool. And he, as mm-hmm. he was getting less and less well, it was less and less apparent, I think, to other people. My mom knew, uh, but she would dress him up, and they'd go out to dinner with mm-hmm. people. And it was a long time before people started to really notice. Mm-hmm. She did a great job in a way of hiding it because it was, she was embarrassed by it. And that right. was unfortunate. I think, if they, again, if they'd had a name for it, right. then I think right. she would have felt so much more relieved because she would have known, well, other people have this too. This is a, an actual disease that people get. Right, right. And, it, and it's not that she's just married to some senile old man and have that kind of stereotype placed on him. Right, the senile old man stereotype was terrifying for her and also for him mm. and I think she was trying to protect him we would go out to dinner with them and he would come out and she'd have him all dressed up in a little sports shirt and a tie and his uh-huh. hair all nicely combed <laughs> and she had done it all you know taking right. care of him right. over time what happened was it became impossible for her to manage on her own right so they had some good insurance that initially paid for somebody to come in half half days and then eventually we had somebody living in right who really gave her an assist and my we finally had to move my father into a different bedroom so my mom could get some sleep. How well did she hide uh, his deterioration from you and your siblings? My mother was very emotional as a personality, and I, and I think she tried really hard I th- to engage us in what was going on. She, she didn't hide it. And I think we were remiss, frankly, in not understanding what she was going through. It wasn't until I was myself much older, and when I started to go down there and see more what was really going on, that I started to truly understand it. Mm-hmm. My mom got sick one year. Um, she had a something going on. I've forgotten what it was. And she said, could I come down for a few days and take her to the doctor? And so I arrived on a Friday morning, and I, the nurse the nurse was there taking care of my father, the, you know, the aide. And I put my mother in the car. We drove off to the doctor. And when they got there, the doctor said to me, you know, your mother's really needs to be admitted to the hospital. And she seemed to me she had anything very serious wrong with her. In retrospect, I think he was being kind. Mm-hmm. And he was putting her in the hospital for respite. Uh-huh. And I don't think he disclosed that to me because he thought I was going to fight with him. But he said he's got to put her in the hospital. So he admitted her to the hospital. And there I was, you know, and I had to drive back to my parents' apartment. And they were with my father. 
And I called um, the aide, and she said, well, you know, today is Friday. And on Friday night, I drive to Miami for a church service that I go to every Saturday. And I don't come back until Sunday night. And, you know, she merrily packed up her bag and got in her car, and off she went. <laughs> and, and here you I, are. <laughs> <laughs> there I was with my father, who weighed, you know, was a big guy in bed. And so I thought nothing of it first. I called the agency. And I said, hi, this is, you know, Llewellyn Barkin, and I'm calling for my dad, and I want to be sure I get somebody in here, like, as soon as possible, like now. And they said, oh, no, we don't have anybody. And I said, but no, no, you can't do that. And she said, well, I'm really sorry. We'd like to help you. And I started to cry. <laughs> and I said, you don't understand. My father weighs 230 pounds. He's six foot one. Yeah. I have no way to take care of him. I don't know how to take care of him. Right. I need somebody to come over. And she said, okay, don't stop crying. We'll figure it out. And she sent me someone. And I can't tell you, to this day, I bless that woman both for the woman who assigned the aide and the aide herself, it turned out mm -hmm. to be great. And so she stayed. But that was my first time really watching what had to be done. It wasn't any more theoretical. It wasn't a mm -hmm. textbook exercise. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just feeling annoyed or sorry for my mother or anything else. Right. It was watching a man who was completely infirm, yeah. who had to be put in a wheelchair, who had to go to the bathroom, yeah. who had to have his diaper changed, who had to be dressed, who had to be fed, who really had a very small um, awareness of who I was at that time. Mm -hmm. There's one very good story I can tell you about that, but who really needed care 24-7, right. and I couldn't give it. And I saw for the first time how my mom, who was about the same age that he was, well, she was younger, but she was so old in her own, at this point, right. what she was going through. My first, mm -hmm. I think, unfortunately, my first real experience with empathy in that situation. Mm-hmm. And how did that, what was that feeling like? Terrible. I felt terrible. I felt sorry for myself. I felt sorry for her. But then I had a different feeling as I wanted to go home. Mm -hmm. I was in Florida. And my mm -hmm. family was here. I was working. I had Cause you, you been were married. Because you were married and had kids of your own. I was own. married. My kids were grown, but mm -hmm. I was working. This goes back to where the children were already out of the house. But I had mm -hmm. responsibilities here. And I had um, this most powerful desire to go home and mm -hmm. get out of there, It was, which was really sort of cognitive dissonance, you know. On the one hand, I felt right. terrible, like I should stay down there and just right. give up everything and take care of them. Right. On the other hand, I already knew that wasn't going to be possible because I couldn't do it. And on the other hand, I knew I, I really it was terrible to feel this just terrible burning urge to get out yeah. and go home. And I, in fact, um, when my mother came back from the hospital finally and the taxi came to pick me up and take me to the airport, I don't think I've ever felt such a sense of relief combined with guilt as I felt in that mm -hmm. moment in time. Mm -hmm. And I think that's so, we hear so much about that. Yeah. from other people. And in retrospect, now that I'm getting older and have more experience, mm -hmm. at the time I thought it was just me. I'm the only one. I'm the only really bad girl uh -huh. who has this, <laughs> did this mean thing and left her parents, you know. Right. Um, in retrospect, I now know that, of course, everybody has this. Is, this is the experience. That's what it's about. Right. And then I would be on the phone with them. I'd kind of fly down and see them, um, and they were really struggling. When I got down the next time, I went down to see them. I had been on a business trip, and I was driving flying down to, I think it was like Georgia, but it was so close to Florida, I thought I'll just take a stop on the way out and I'll go down and spend a couple of days with them. So I flew down and um, my mother had no food in the house. She called me as I was flying down. I was on the flight's in a few minutes and she said, well, I'd like to let you tell you that I have no food in the house. And I said, she, I, haven't had, I haven't been able to get out to get anything to eat because it, and it's been very difficult. And I got down there um, and there was really no food in the house. I mean, it's, it sort of was 
extraordinary. And I remember that it was very late at night, and one of the big grocery stores in Florida stays open really late. And I took the car, and I went over there, and I bought like $2,000 worth of I put everything in that drawer I put uh-huh. I could put in a cart uh-huh. and I packed up the car and I got somebody to help me and we went home and we stayed up all night putting food away so that for the next six months she would have stuff to eat right but it was that moment again of realizing it wasn't just about getting my father into the bathroom or feeding him there had to be food to be fed with and all of these responsibilities were caregiving that I wasn't there to give right. and you know and the biggest mistake they made was moving to Florida which always was, that was the tragedy of it. If because they, their network, they had no they family had network, friends, no support network. No, they had friends and they had people that were in, often in the same situation they were in. You know, I call Florida God's waiting room. They were all old and they were all sick. They were all taking care of each other, but they right. weren't taking care of somebody else. Right. So we had an aide who was great and she was, you know, godsend. We had a number of them that were terribly difficult. My mother was hard and they would call me up. They'd work a week and they'd call me up and they'd say, Mrs. Barkin, I just... Love your father. He's the nicest man on the planet. Your mother's driving me crazy. I'm, I, I'm, I just resigned. And I'd call the agency and get another one. Yeah. But we finally got a really good person. And she stayed with him for about five years. She was at the last five years of his life. She was great. You said you had a story about your dad when you were down in Florida. The story about my father was very, very emotional. I'll try to tell it without, without weeping. The week my mom was in the hospital, I got up to take care of things. So I got up in the morning, I checked on my dad, made sure the aide, she didn't sleep in. Maybe she did sleep in. I had to go make sure she was up and things were going on and things being taken care of. Um, and then I would go for a swim after I got everything set up, have my breakfast, get in the car, drive to the hospital, check on my mom, make sure she was okay, have lunch with her, get back in the car, stop at whatever the stores for errands and things were, drive back to the house, Check on my dad, make sure that the aide was giving him dinner and get him all to bed and everything, take care of everything. So one morning, about three or four days into this, I had developed this little routine for myself. And I went into the pool and I was swimming and my father came out and he was in his wheelchair and he turned to the aide and he said, and it's very emotional, and he said, that's my Llewellyn. When I was young, um, I was in a swimming race. And my dad, I was maybe five years, six years old. I was a very good athlete when I was a kid. Even at five or six, my father was a professional ball player. He was very competitive. And he was proud of the fact that even as a little kid, I had a lot of um, competitive strength. And I was also good at things he put me up to do. So I think I may have been five or six years old. And they put me in a swimming race with kids who were older. And my father stood by the side of the pool and he said, that's my Llewellyn, and I won. It was a real moment for me. You know, your parents are your parents. Um, this was was very hard. It was... There were, you know, nothing's easy. This was extremely difficult. What I didn't understand, and I should have, is that everybody goes through this. Mm-hmm. You lose them gradually. They go away, you know, gradually. And your job is to sort of make sure that as they, to the extent that you can, that you move out. I was grateful that I had enough resources to be able to help them. Mm-hmm. My brother and I supported them for that last period. Um, I probably shouldn't have told that story. You may want to get rid of it. It's a hard story to tell. You know, the sad part of it is that my mom was herself difficult. You know, she didn't really, and angry and frustrated. And when Nancy Reagan walked down the aisle after Mm -hmm. the president died, my mom called me on the phone when she was watching it from Florida. I was watching it from here, and she said, that's me. That's Mm -hmm. every caregiver, Mm -hmm. every dementia caregiver who is really an online caregiver. I wasn't really online. I was in and out, you know, with my dad. I was 
Right. Um, I was coming. I was going. I was trying to be helpful. I was paying the bills. I was taking care of the things that needed to be taken care of. My mom was taking a lot of the burden, but I wasn't really the online caregiver. She was the one. Right took care of him all those years and kept him at home mm-hmm. to her credit. I mean, he never went into a nursing home. She had him in a nursing home once for about three days. And she, I found a nice place for him after he had some minor surgery. And then she took him right home again. She couldn't handle it. Mm. She needed to have him home. Right. When she got sick, which is kind of later on after he died, she lived alone for a while and she had a stroke and um, a couple of small strokes and my mom had, she had a form of cancer. She'd had some surgery. She was now into, well into her 80s and tired, absolutely tired. A lot of her friends had passed, and she was, you know, more on her own than she had been. And, she, and there was really no way anymore to bring her up to New York to give her an apartment on her own. It wasn't going to work. And she didn't want to move up here into one of the facilities up here. So we had decided that we would, you know, my husband kept saying, let's wait and see what happens. So what happened was she had a slightly more serious stroke, and they found her on the floor. We They sent her into an, a rehab, actually, into the hospital, then into rehab. And while she was there, the social workers told me that they would not allow her to go home on her own. She either had to have full-time help, or, right. and it wasn't possible anymore to do that. Right. So we agreed that what we would do is we would move her from her apartment and put her in a small small apartment in this assisted living facility, and that's what we did. How did she feel about that? She was furious with me. <laughs> I mean, she was angry. I, um, My husband and I went down there, and in 10 days, we cleaned out her old apartment, bought furniture for the new apartment, made everything gorgeous, right. tried to really make her feel at home, and she was pissed. Yeah. <laughs> and never, Again, not an unusual circumstance, she right? She did not want this in any, any way, and it was she was already using not a walker. Well, I guess it was. It was using a walker. She was... Um, you know, just furious, and I, I kept trying to explain to her there really weren't that many options anymore. You know, it was that was the way it was. I had found a place for her in New York. She didn't like it. There was nothing further I could do for her. Plus, the way that the system works, getting somebody out of Florida into a New York system is not that easy in 20 minutes. So, it was this was actually an easier transition. So, I went down to visit her a couple of times after that, and she seemed to be adjusting nicely. She was. Um, she had announced to everybody that she was a professional nightclub singer. Uh-huh. <laughs> She'd made up a whole story about herself. And since most of the people in this place were everybody as demented as she was, that they everybody believed her. So she had told a number of people that she was, this is a very funny story. My mom liked to sing. She had a wonderful singing voice, unlike me. And she, um, they had a piano in the recreation room. So during recreation time, she would sing. So when I got down there for this visit, the woman in charge of this place called me in to tell me that my mom had been entertaining everybody during recreation hour, mm-hmm. singing all the songs that everybody loved, and it was just wonderful. And then one night, they said to her, this is so lovely, and I hope you'll come sing tomorrow. And she said, no, no, I need to be paid. I'm a professional. <laughs> I don't sing for nothing. <laughs> like all good professionals <laughs> And say. like all good professionals, I expect <laughs> to be paid, you know? And she said, was your mother really a nightclub singer? Not actually a nightclub singer, no. <laughs> Nor was she a lawyer, which was another sort of persona. She, you know, So she mm. developed a whole series of stories to keep herself entertained. Um, and then, unfortunately, she had a more serious stroke. Mm. And I got called down. And she was, she had gone to the next, entirely to the next level. Fortunately right. for me, I had had her sign a power of attorney prior to that. So I had 
the authority to make the decisions and changes that I needed to make, mm-hmm. which I did very quickly. It was at that point that we brought her up to New York and um, put her in a home here, in a nursing home here. That was an interesting story for me for a number of reasons. When There's a great story about my mom on the plane. What happened? So what happened was I, I made arrangements to take her home, and I called the airline to ensure that I could keep her oxygen tank with me, and we did a whole fire drill on getting this oxygen tank and getting it approved and you know making sure she was okay and then I decided to take the aid from the home with me in so that when I got to New York I would be a little easier getting her to the new the new home and Mm -hmm. she'd have some familiar face with her and so I bought two first class tickets for myself and my mom and a ticket for the aid and we were all going to go to the airport together. And when I got to the airport with the oxygen tank that the airline had itself told me to buy, I got grilled like I was a terrorist. I mean, it was really, that was moment one. Moment two was standing on the security line. They decided to pull my mother off the security line to check her. Mm -hmm. And this one, she was in a wheelchair. And the um, TSA person came over and said, we're going to pull your mother and you'll have to step back. And we're going to check her. And I said, I suggest to you that you be really careful because she's wearing a diaper. Mm-hmm. And they pulled her off and they patted her down. I mean, it was totally ridiculous. And I was hysterical that she would be upset. Right. She was very sort of jolly about the whole thing. They gave her back to me. We got her on the plane. And as the plane started to roll down the runway, my mother started to sing, um, <laughs> Come fly with me. Come fly. Let's fly away. <laughs> which I thought was really mortifying, but everybody in the plane thought was hilarious. And then we, uh, the stewardesses were, God bless, they were wonderful. She gave her a lot of ginger ale and kept her quiet. Uh-huh. About three quarters of the way through the flight, my mom said, um, was got started to get agitated. And I was trying to keep her calm. I was showing her pictures to the children on my iPad, and I was trying to tell her little stories. And, and at one point I said, she started to get very noisy, and I said, you, Mom, I really need you to keep your voice down. And she said, who are you? She said, who are you to give me direction? I want my daughter. Mm-hmm. That was a moment. And I said, well, I had two choices. I had learned from so other social workers who had been counseling me not to argue with her. Mm-hmm. My first instinct was to say, what are you kidding? I mean, here's your daughter. She's been paying your bills for 10 years. Right. You know, are you kidding? <laughs> I didn't say that. I said, your daughter will meet you at the airport when we land. She's definitely here to take care of you. But, you know, right now I'd like you to keep your voice down. She said, I want my daughter right now. And then I, I, I you know, just try to be quiet. A couple of minutes later, I thought to myself, she got quiet. I said to myself, this, I really was sort of annoyed. So I said to her, why can't I be your daughter? And she said, my daughter is attractive and professional, and look at you. (laughs) And I looked at myself, and I had on my son's old sweatshirt from seventh grade, and I had had my glasses, and my feet were killing me, I remember. And I was absolutely, and I had a little bit of her formula, like, sort of on the side Uh of my shirt. I was absolutely exhausted. I hadn't slept in two and a half days. And um, I thought, well, that's nice. That's the way she remembers me. She remembers me as this very attractive, professional, successful woman instead of this really gross slob sitting next to her on the plane. <laughs> Did you take it that way? Like when you, when, because when you first hear those words, it feels like a slap, but. Did you did you immediately take it as kind of a compliment? I was so surprised at my own reaction because I did actually take it as a compliment, and I think that was due to the fact that the counseling I had gotten ah. over the six months when this was all going on had really helped me. 
Mm-hmm. And I had stopped arguing. I had started to try to see the world through her eyes. Right. And in her eyes, her daughter was this fabulous woman. And this slob sitting next to her was just some, you know, horrible person who was schlepping her off to New York. Right. What a difference training and makes. What then. a difference it makes. Exactly. <laughs> that was part of it. We got off the plane. We got um, into one of these vans the, the home had sent out to mm. the airport. And we put her in it. And she sort of slept most of the way. By the time we got to the nursing home, we were all exhausted. And I remember a couple of things about that was that I they I went to the home to office to register her. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to, and they gave me this gigantic box of paperwork to fill out. I started to cry. That was depressing. I thought I was done, and now I had all the stuff I still had to do. But on the way out, I was going to take a taxi back to New York because I was in Westchester. I went over to the um, area, to her room, and I stopped in. And she was all cleaned up at this point. They had bathed her and changed her, and she was mm-hmm. sitting up in a nice clean bed. It was such mm-hmm. a relief to see her like that. And she looked at me, and she said, well, where have you been? And I said, well, I was taking care of things. And she said, well, I have a lot of things to tell you. And I said to her, well, do you know who I am? And she said, well, of course I know who you are. You're my daughter. And I thought, oh, my God. <laughs> in and out, in and out. In you and know? out, right. The confusing thing about it was the in and out thing. Oh, interesting. It wasn't just that she thought I was one thing all the time. It was that you never knew who you were going to get. Right. And you never yeah. know who you were going to be. Never who I was going to be. I went later over this next six months. She was there almost 15 months before she died. And in mm-hmm. that 15 month period, when I went up to visit her, she would, as I walked into the room, she would say, um, Are you my daughter? And I would I said, Yes, I am. And she Oh, I'm so glad you're here. It turned out that there were a couple of aides that were part of her hospice program who were doing sort of music therapy mm-hmm. or some other form of therapy. And they looked a little like me, I guess. And she would say to them each time they they came into the room, "You're my daughter, you're my uh-huh. daughter." Yeah, it was very interesting. Interesting. You know, she really, I, I really, I, I really do respect what she put in it for my father. I don't think I really appreciated it. I don't think mm-hmm. it was just that I was young. I think I was very. I think like many people in my generation, we were very busy working, taking care of our kids, our families. We were really hard to sort of stop what you're doing and right. really truly understand. That's right. the tragedy of it. I'm not sure that it's any different for our kids with us, frankly, than it was for us with our parents. I think generations are not the same, but this was a it was a long haul. Right. Um, and when it was all over, and my mom was you know died, my buried my father in Florida, I brought my mother down to be buried with him. It was you know it was a sense of palpable relief that they were at peace finally that it was this whole thing was over. You know as kind of the primary caregiver for your mom, what do you wish you had done differently or what do you regret there versus can you describe a moment that you're proud of? I wish, I'm very proud that I took bull by the horns at the end of the day and went down there and and I put her in this very nice place. It was the best we could do by far at that time and the fastest Mm -hmm. and that we fixed it up really nicely for her and tried to make her as comfortable as possible, and that during that time, my one of my cousins went down to visit her, and I'm grateful, and I'm and I'm proud of the fact that we spent so much time and money, both my brother and I, really supporting them during this very difficult time of their lives. I'm proud of the fact that when things went south at the this assisted living after she had the last stroke, mm-hmm. I got a phone call from one of the social workers and one of the hospice workers. And they had made a series of mistakes without going into the detail on what they were. They were really mistakes they had made some real mistakes and I was very ang- I was really angry I was angry and there were two ways to handle that anger one was to go down and just yell at everybody and the other was to go back into my normal sort of CEO role and so I called a meeting 
Uh-huh. <laughs> I called a meeting at the assisted living, and I had the old hospice, the one I didn't like that was screwed everything up. I had the all the folks from the assisted living, including the director, the social worker in charge of my mother's case, the lo- the doctor in the facility, um, one of the nurses who had been helping, and an aide. There must have been five of them. There were at least three from the new hospice. That would be eight altogether. There was me, and there were at least two more people. There were 10, 12 people in that room sitting around a table talking about my mother, who was the size of a teacup, whose mm-hmm. case wasn't even that complicated, right. so that I could actually get her out of there. And, and I've always been proud of myself for just taking the bull by the horns and saying, you know what, enough is enough. This, I've got to get this under control. And at that meeting, this, the hospice worker from the new hospice that I was about to hire after all this sort of conversation about what had gone well and some people were sorry about things they had done, this woman turned to me and she said, what is it you want, she said to me. What do you want? What mm-hmm. do you? And I said, I want to take her back to New York. And then she said, okay, let's make that happen. And I was so proud of myself for sort of taking the bull by the horns, telling her exactly what I wanted and right. getting it done. Right. Because that next year and a half could have been so much harder than it was for her and for me. And it made everything much easier. Right. And you didn't know how long she was going to live for. So that could have that could have dragged on for another several years. Correct. You didn't know. We were told that she was going to live maybe six months. And mm-hmm. um, she lived for almost 18 months more. She was really I – mean, I remember going shopping for her clothes. When I left Florida, it was winter. Mm-hmm. And she had mostly Florida-type clothes. So there was nothing really warm. So I stopped at a store in Florida before I went to pick her up that morning. And I bought a whole slew of stuff, sweatshirts, and they'd given mm-hmm. me a list from the nursing home, and I brought everything mm-hmm. down there. You know, that must have been, let's call it December, January. By May, June, it was getting warm, you know, and she was still alive, so I had to go buy a summer wardrobe, which mm-hmm. is what I did. Mm-hmm. You know, now we get into the next season, and I make sure she has enough clothes. And I remember as the seasons went on, I thought, well, this is nice. And she was really, I'm also proud of the fact that notwithstanding everything she went through, that we enabled her to die in a way that was safe and peaceful and mm-hmm. comfortable, mm-hmm. And, and, and she wasn't in any pain, and all of those things were very important, and they still are important for everybody. Mm-hmm. What's your favorite memory of her? And it could be from any time in your life. Oh, when my you... God, my mother. God, she's... She was quite a character, it sounds like. She's a lounge singer. She's a lawyer. My mother. Um, you know, my favorite memory of my mother is when she, I had, I was having something, when I was first married, my husband was very, we were very young, he was in law school, we were finan- struggling financially and, and to get sort of by that next stage of your life when you're both in school and you're really working very hard. And I had a very small child. And she wasn't the most domestic person in town. She wasn't a babysitter type at all. You know, she babysat when the kids were like in college that she'd come and visit them. But she wasn't so interested in taking small children to the park or feeding them anything. <laughs> she'd come and kiss them and wave and get, uh-huh. you know, spray them with perfume and disappear. She right. was very glamorous. <laughs> but she um, came to the house one day and was really wonderful with me and with the children. And without getting into the detail, that was a really nice thing for her to do. Mm-hmm. And every year in the few years after that, she would take me to the spa mm-hmm. in Florida. Mm-hmm. She would to the Palm Air Spa in Palm Beach, Florida. And, and we would sit over breakfast in the morning in the room, and she would tell me stories about her family and her childhood. And all the stories I sort of knew a little of, little bits and pieces. Mm-hmm. But my favorite memories were sitting with her in those storytelling moments, really, which mm-hmm. is you know what tells you why stories are so important. Learning about my grandmother and some of the funny stories from the family mm-hmm. um, that I didn't really know. And I mm-hmm. got a lot of, not just information, but a lot of um, knowledge of who she was and what she'd been through, which has actually served me very well during this period. 
you know, as I, as I continue to think of her now, I think of those times together. How interesting that, you know, I asked you for your, you know, your kind of favorite memory, and it's not some grandiose, you know, action or adventure or vacation, but it really is just she showed up when you needed her to, and she was kind to you, or she told you some stories about the family. Correct. Right? And she did it, and she told me stories that were she had a very, my mother had a fabulous sense of humor, and, um, and she was very eccentric and mm-hmm. had a very peculiar childhood herself, so she was very, she, she had a sense of irony about the world, and so when she told stories about the family and about my dad's experiences and about her family, who a lot of crazy things went on in her family. She she was terribly funny, and so sitting over coffee in the morning, and we didn't see each other that way in New York. You know, mm-hmm. we were she especially when she lived in Florida, we weren't seeing each other that way. So it was really right. very intimate time to be together and learn about things that I don't think I've since heard from anybody else. I mean, I think I'm probably the only one that has a lot of these stories, and I probably should write them down right. so that my children now and my grandchildren right. can actually take advantage of those. What's a quick one that comes to mind when you think of your mom telling you some story from her life or her marriage or whatever? What did what comes to mind quickly? That the, the story of the gun. The gun. gun story. <laughs> <laughs> my dad was a professional baseball player. Uh-huh. Um, he played minor league ball, and he was playing for the Detroit Tiger Cats in Texas, I think they were, Fort Worth maybe. And they were, um, my mom, who was newly married, you know, a young bride, went down with him, and they got a, they were looking for a room, and it was hard for them to find a room. My father was Jewish. They were both Jewish, and so that was, his name was Greenberg, so it was very hard to find a room. Mm-hmm. You know, they weren't giving a lot of rooms out to Jews in those days in Texas. They managed to find a room. My mother was very social. She made a lot, all the other baseball players' wives loved her. And she was, even when she got older, when she was living alone in Florida, she was like high school. When you went to visit her, the phone rang all day long with all these ladies calling her, making dates to do things. So I can imagine her in that situation down there. You know, she got down there and she made friends with all the ball players' wives and she really had fun. And one day she said to my father, I want a gun. I want a, I want a pearl handled revolver. When everybody in Rome, has right? everybody down here has a pearl handled yep. revolver and I want one too. And my father said, Don't be ridiculous. You wouldn't even know what to do with it if you had it. It's dangerous. And she said, Joe, I I must everybody all the other women have one. I want one too. It's very mm-hmm. important. You may have to shoot a rat. It's very mm-hmm. important. So my father, you know, being a classic example, my father said, Okay, fine, all right, fine. So he took her, in those days, I know what it's like now, they sold these guns in jewelry stores. So my dad took her down to a jewelry store um, in Fort Worth, and the jeweler opened up a beautiful case, and he opened up, a, as she told me, a, put a velvet sort of mat and took out a whole slew of beautiful revolvers, you know, pearl-handled revolvers. And my, my father said to my mother, pick one. You know, you want a gun? Pick a gun. So she looked at the gun, and she picked one up, and she passed out. <laughs> that's the way the story was told and it's a great story I mean it's a great story because her enthusiasm for things that she wanted didn't follow to the reality of them right and that was sort of right. a theme with her in general the you fantasy know? versus reality yeah. right but she was very my father said we put the guns back and they picked her up off the floor and they gave her water and we took her home and that was the end of the gun story you uh-huh. know do you like reviewing story? Do you review stories uh, of your mom and your dad with your uh, kids and your grandkids? We tell stories a lot. My parents were interesting. You know, my dad was mm. a ball player. My dad served in the army. We just came back mm. recently from a trip to Normandy. My father went in on the beaches actually, and served very actively in World War II, um, and went through all the way to the Ardennes where he served in the Battle of the Bulge. So mm-hmm. he was a really 
active soldier and came back with a lot of PS, what we now know is to be PSTD, mm. you know, fairly, probably close to a year of recovery. It was a very tough time for them. Um, so the stories of my parents in the war years, in the Depression, mm-hmm. um, in the years of you know, Eisenhower and suburban, suburbia and golf, um, and my mom's childhood, which was difficult, were interesting stories, and I do tell them. I've told my daughter and my son, I think, pretty much all the stories I was told. Mm-hmm. I haven't yet told all of my grandchildren, but I, I'm sure we'll pass them along. We're coming up on the end of the of the show, and uh, but before we go, I like to ask people if you and when you meet people who are in the middle of this caregiving experience, what's what's the first thing you do or say? Caregiving for people with dementia is probably the hardest job on the planet. You're watching somebody you love disappear. Mm-hmm. Um, it's un very uncertain how they're going to behave. Unpredictable. And you're bringing to that relationship, that experience, all the baggage that comes from your previous relationship and requires you in a way to reinvent everything you know about the way you've communicated with this person before. And if you can do that, everything else gets easier. So I've often said the smartest thing, and what I try to tell people is the most important thing anyone ever told me was that if somebody who has dementia is talking to you and says the sky is green, then you say, what a beautiful shade of green. Mm-hmm. And if they say it's the day and it's not, you say it's not because it's the, because you don't you put putting yourself in the other person's world right. changes the way the experience is going to take place, and the absence of that anxiety and that tension changes the experience and makes takes it from being almost unmanageable to being barely manageable, which mm-hmm. is better. Um, it's never going to be great. And right. then and, and creates a, a, a way for you to sort of um, negotiate and manage what you're going to be having to go through. Mm-hmm. Um, just, you know, aptly put, the long goodbye during this period. Good advice. Llewellyn Barkin, thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to share your story, go to caringkindnyc.org slash podcast Maybe we'll use your story on the show. We'd love to hear from you. Please subscribe to this podcast and leave some glowing feedback. We love positive reinforcement. I'm Chris Doucette, and you're listening to Caregiver Storyteller, produced by Karen Kind, the heart of Alzheimer's caregiving.